Hi, and welcome to Experience Points by University XP. On Experience Points, we explore different ways we can learn from games. I'm your host, Dave Ang, from Gamespace Learning by University XP. Find out more by going to universityxp.com. On today's episode, we'll learn from Dr. Ray Kimball from 42 at Games. Ray is an educator with over two decades of experience in games-based learning and collaborative professional development. As a former U.S. Army history teacher at West Point, Ray integrated games-based learning into every course he taught. He founded 42 Educational Games, Coaching and Design, 42 at Games for short, in 2020 to serve higher education faculty and help them harness the power of games-based pedagogy. With a doctorate in education, in learning technologies from Pepperdine University in multiple publications, Ray is a dedicated educator committed to promoting innovation and development in the field. Ray, welcome to the show. Dave, thanks so much for having me. Super excited to talk to you today. Great, right. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. I want to jump into the first question here, which I think is a very unique background, particularly in the games-based learning community. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your West Point history. Uh, specifically, how did your experience teaching at West Point shape your views on games-based learning, and how has this influenced your work with 42 Ed Games? Dave, thanks. Uh, I love talking about my time at West Point because it is such an amazing institution uh, and especially such a great place to teach. Uh, I was very fortunate that the entire time I was at West Point, I, I cycled through several different jobs, but the entire time I was able to teach in the Department of History there. And the History Department has a long-running track record of being a place that really embraces innovation in teaching and really encourages their, their faculty at all levels to try new and different and innovative things and not be afraid of things failing and not be afraid of things not going exactly the way that they wanted. Uh, and that was that was reinforced to me from day one when I came there as a new faculty member. And it's, and it's really critical in that institution because there is such a large core curriculum there, you know, something like 30 courses out of 40 that the average cadet takes um, are core curriculum. And so that means that the cadet doesn't necessarily have a choice in what they're teaching there. So what does that translate to in a history classroom? Well, it means that of the of the 64 students that I was typically teaching in a semester, uh, anywhere from 32 up to, up to, you know, two thirds, 48 might not necessarily want to be there or might not necessarily really have the highest opinion of history. So it was really important that I approach that classroom in a way to make it as open and welcoming as possible and really get people engaged and moving. And so as I was thinking through how I wanted to do that and how I wanted to make my classroom an active, really active hub of experiential learning, one of our first lessons was on Greek philosophers and talking about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and the Stoics and some other, you know, some other different approaches and, and different viewpoints uh, in, in Greece, in ancient Greece. And, and I hit upon this idea of doing it as a role-playing exercise where each I had a my, my son at the time was four years old and was just was just going into school uh, into pre-K at that point. And so my pitch to the class was your job is to teach my son. And specifically, I want you to make the pitch to me of how you're going to teach my son to be a good man and a good citizen based on your assigned area of Greek philosophy. So one group were Aristotelians and one group were Socratics and one group were Platonics and, and so on. Um, and, and I thought it would be a fun little exercise for like 10 or 15 minutes. 
it took over my entire class period. They were totally into it. They were engaged. They, you know, they questioned each other and gave me great feedback and gave me great thoughts and wanted to keep rolling and rolling and rolling. And so, so at that point I said, okay, I'm, I'm on to something here, right? This whole games-based learning thing, uh, there's something to this and, and this is really powerful and really vital. And so from that point forward, I made it a point, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't incorporate a game in, in every lesson, not every lesson would lend it, but I made sure that, you know, we typically divided a course into three blocks. Uh, so, so typically a third of each semester had a different kind of focus area. And I made sure that I had at least one classroom game in every block, uh, that I taught. And, and I saw, again, I saw the feedback from students. The classroom games were routinely the highest rated, uh, part of part, the high, highest rated part of the course that I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, students really enjoyed it. And it wasn't just because it was, oh, this is fun and we can goof off and we can have a good time. I saw the impact on their learning as well. And I even got to experiment with using uh, a game for a final exam at one point. And I mm. saw some of the best results that I'd ever seen on a final exam when I got to run it that way. Um, so all of that really just combined to reinforce to me how incredibly powerful game-based learning is mm-hmm. uh, and how how useful it is not only for teaching history, but across teaching multiple disciplines. And 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 I was a I was an advocate for game based learning uh, while I was at West Point. Uh, talked about it with the rest of the history department department, and talked about it with other departments. And knew that it was something that I wanted to continue doing uh, once I retired from the Army in 2021. Mm, I see. Wow, great! That's an incredibly interesting story. I did not know that about. Uh, you basically challenging your history students to teach your son because, you know, when I think about it, particularly with games, um, we put a lot of the onus and the agency on the players and the learners. And that's essentially what you did, right? With your with your students yeah. for the first time saying like, hey, listen, my son's four years old. You are considered the experts right now on 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 Greek history. How do you teach a four-year-old who really doesn't have any concept of of history to begin with, specifically Greek history. And I, I really love that approach and putting that, I guess, that agency and really like that that call and that discipline on your students themselves. Yeah. And, and I can't emphasize enough, you know, these were not like upper level experienced students. This was a this was a freshman world history survey course. These were, you know, these these were first year students who had just come out of their summer training and were still like trying to figure out what their new identity was. And so the fact that they just wholeheartedly embraced that and and really kind of woke up in a way that I hadn't seen in the previous lessons in that class was was just really awe-inspiring for me. Wow. Uh, Just as an aside, I know that at the Naval Academy, they have plebe summer. Is there a West Point equivalent to that? Yeah, there is. It's called Cadet Basic Training, and mm-hmm. it's the first summer, so it typically starts right at the end of June or beginning of July. Uh, and really, it's it's six weeks of basic training that's designed, you know, one, to acclimate new cadets, as, as mm-hmm. they're called at the time, uh, acclimate them to military service and give them a sense of, of what it means uh, to be a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, we do all of our pre, uh, pre-semester assessments, so they're they take exams about hey which what are they going to test into an advanced history course and an advanced math course and are they going to test into a particular language so it's this really neat hybrid mm-hmm. of 
you know, the, the, the kind of basic training stuff that you see in the movies of, yes, they do an obstacle course and yes, they learn how to shoot guns. And yes, they, you know, they do all of the military stuff that you would expect to see, but they're also getting themselves ready to be scholars during the academic year. And so it's just this really fascinating blend that you get to watch cadet identity uh, evolve over the course of that summer and until they roll into your classroom in the fall. Great. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. Uh, I know that you set up the example in that past question about how you first got introduced into games-based learning, but now I want to talk more about uh, 42 Education Games. So what inspired you to start 42 Ed Games, and how do you see your work impacting higher education faculty and students? Yeah, you know, when I, so as I said, I, I made the decision that I was going to retire from the Army in 2021 after 26 years in uniform. I, I had, you know, I had a great time in service, got to do a lot of different jobs, but but you reach a point where, where you say to yourself, okay, it's it's time to move on. And so when I thought about you know, what do I want to do next? What, what, what's, what does the next phase of my life look like? There were a bunch of different options, right? I had previously been a strategist. I could have gone and done a government service job as a strategist in, in a command somewhere. I, I could have gone and taught uh, either there at the academy as a civilian professor or uh, elsewhere at a civilian institution of higher learning. And I really had to sit down and, and say to myself, what do I enjoy the most? What what really gets me going? What what makes me happy when I get up in the morning? Um, and and what I finally figured out after taking some time and thinking through it, and frankly having some really great kind of scaffolded reflection opportunities that are built into the military transition process. Um, what I really ultimately settled on was that the two things that made me happiest were games based learning. Uh, as I mentioned before, and getting to see students do that, but then also working with faculty in general to help them realize their dreams, right? So my mm -hmm. last couple of years at West Point, I served as what's called the chief of faculty development, which basically meant that I oversaw all the various faculty development opportunities that we offered uh, for, our, for our military and civilian faculty. And I really enjoyed helping faculty in that way and seeing them get engaged. And so I, it kind of dawned on me that, hey, maybe there's maybe there's room to combine the two here, right? Maybe mm -hmm. there's a way to help faculty use game-based learning. Because one of the things that I saw routinely when I would try to help out faculty is they would be like, hey, this looks fascinating, um, but boy, I just, I don't feel like I have the time to integrate that. And so 42 Educational Games Coaching and Design was, was born out of that. And really the key idea there is, is that what I can do is I can connect with higher ed faculty, mm -hmm. assess not only their classroom context, but their institutional context to get a sense of what kinds of games might be best for them. Mm -hmm. Go find that existing game and then bring it back to them uh, and shape it in a way that they can take it and immediately put it to work in their classroom without any further headache and without any further problems. And mm -hmm. then I can do all of that for basically the cost of what they would pay to attend a professional development conference so that that, uh, so that, that service can stay within the budget uh, that most faculty development departments, uh, most departments allocate in terms of, of faculty development. 
So that's the primary way uh, mm-hmm. that the work impacts higher education faculty. The other piece uh, that I do, the and design piece, is that I do a lot of work as what's called a development editor uh, with faculty who are working on educational games of their own, but maybe just need some help uh, getting that game to its next stage, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they just need help with a particular house style and formatting their game for a particular house style for publication, or maybe they need some assistance with research, or maybe they need just a fresh set of eyes to think about game design me- or game mechanics for their game. Um, what, you know, whatever the case may be, I've genuinely enjoyed that development editor work as well. Um, and really helping faculty build new games that they can then continue to drive on with and that they can really see succeed in their own context and eventually even advance to the point where they can get it published. Hmm. Well, that's uh, incredibly interesting, right? Because I, I feel that it's particularly with games-based learning, and when I've talked to faculty members like you've done in the past, the big onus and the big challenge seems to be like, you know, like, where do I start? I teach this class. I teach X, Y, and Z. You know, do I create a game? Do I just take a game and adapt it? And there's like so many questions that begin in a faculty member's mind where it can feel overwhelming. And I feel like you bring a lot of value basically to that challenge by saying, listen, you tell me what exactly, you know, what your learning outcomes are, what your learning objectives are, what the objectives of the curriculum is. I will find the game. I will help you adapt the game and I will help you use this game as another resource for teaching your students. That's incredible. Yeah, Dave, that's exactly right. And that's exactly the vision. And one thing that I'll add on that, in addition to you know, learning about their own learning outcomes. The other piece that I really have to take into account is their institutional context, right? It doesn't do a faculty member any good if I recommend a game to them that is just not a good fit for their institution. And Mm -hmm. just to give some examples of what I mean by that, there are some institutions that are fine with the idea of, let's say, a tabletop game and you know, love the idea of, hey, yeah, let's bring a board game into the class, no problem. But a role-playing game maybe is not a good fit for that institution because mm-hmm. they're risk-averse and they're worried about showing up on TikTok or YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are some institutions out there that are fine with the idea of role-playing games but maybe can't really support a digital game-based learning approach because they don't have the infrastructure and there's no kind of common platform for their students to use. So just as in my work, just as important as understanding that classroom context for the instructor, those learning outcomes you mentioned, the student Mm -hmm. population, uh, just as important is really understanding the institutional context so that when I deliver a game to, to that faculty member, they can be confident not only in using the game in their own space, but in sharing it more broadly in their institution and saying, hey, look at this cool thing that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. anybody else want to jump in on it exactly i'm so glad that you brought that up because i know that another um example i guess of a restriction in terms of institution is uh, i believe some institutions are also adverse to any anything that could be considered or interpreted as gambling so if there's yeah. any sort of like randomization through usually through dice but i mean there's a lot of other ways you can randomize things in games like with cards and other things and i think that making sure that you're you're really tailoring your approach, your adaptation for the game, for not only the faculty, not only the learning outcomes, but also the specific philosophy of that institution is also key. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it, again, it's it's all about, you, you've got to understand the institution and uh, the faculty needs and find something that works well for both. All right. 
Now, Ray, I looked at your resume and it it is quite storied, but there's mm-hmm. one game in particular that stood out and I was hoping you could share a little bit more about it. I'm talking about the Mongol Matrix game. So can you share more about your Mongol Matrix game? I know that you created it as a tabletop simulation, the Mongol invasion of Kievan, Kievan Rus. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Yep. Can you provide a specific background on the learning outcomes of that game and its overall structure and your takeaways from using it in the classroom? Yeah, absolutely. So a very brief background, because as much as I would love to believe that all of your audience are ancient Russian historians and know what Kievan Rus is, um, let me just explain that real quick. Kievan Rus is really kind of the proto-Russian state, right? It's the, it's the it's the original Russian state, if you will, that is centered around the city of Kiev uh, and, and grows at, in power over the course of several centuries um, until it is ultimately destroyed uh, by the Mongol invasions in the 13th century. And so we we deal with Kievan in the course that I was teaching, the Russian History Survey course, um, we deal with Kievan Rus in our first couple of lessons, and then uh, we have a brief lesson on the Mongol invasion. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, one of the things that I tried to do with game-based learning was I tried to make sure that I had a game for every block that, that could feel you know fun and engaging. And in my Russian history course, I had a game for the middle block that was a, a, a simulation of the Russian imperial court. And then I had a game uh, for my last block, which was a Cuban Missile Crisis uh, simulation, but I didn't really have anything that I liked. Uh, I tried a couple things and, and they just didn't really work out. Uh, I didn't have anything that I liked for that first block. And I was very fortunate about that time that uh, I did uh, I did a two-year course at the U.S. Army War College, which has an amazing wargaming cell there. I mean, just mm-hmm. really, really incredible folks there. And they introduced me to this idea of a Matrix game. Uh, and really, the idea of a Matrix game is, is it's that um, individuals... Uh, play particular roles in a given scenario. Um, they lay out what they want to do in a particular scenario at, during a particular turn, and they explain why they think it will work. And then you go around the table to the other players, and they either agree with that player and say, yes, I agree that would work because, or they can disagree and say, no, I, I, I don't think that would work because of why. And once the game master takes into account everybody's uh, sense of things, they say, okay, you're going to need to roll, let's say, um, uh, so for something that's an easy, that's probably easily going to happen that everybody agrees is likely, hey, you need to roll uh, with two dice, you need to roll a a three or better in order to to make that happen. But something that's Mm -hmm. harder, you might have to say, hey, you have to roll a 10 or better. Uh, in order to get that. So matrix games um, have been used for kind of complex simulations. The one that we were doing in War College was specifically talking about a a defense of the Baltics, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, again, this was this was five years before the Russian invasion of Ukraine looks Mm -hmm. amazingly prescient now. Um, And so as I was seeing this matrix game, I said, hey, I think there's I think there's something there that I can translate into my course. And so the game, the matrix game that I built um, has five different factions that players are part of. They can be the Mongols. They can be uh, the Orthodox Church. And again, this is the Eastern Orthodox Church at the time. The Russian Orthodox Church does not yet exist as a separate entity because uh, Constantinople uh, still exists as part of the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are there are folks representing the princes of the city of Kiev, the city of Novgorod, um, and the city of Moscow. 
And and so and and what the matrix what the Mongol Matrix game does is it pits these players against each other. Now you would think, hey, this would be this would be very simple, right? All the 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 Russian states just have to the cities just have to come together and band against the Mongols and and they'll be fine. Well, there's a prisoner's dilemma element that comes in there, right? Which is, well, what if we band together but one city drops out and cuts a separate deal? And am I going to get sacrifices because of that? So there's a fascinating interplay that goes on in the game um, where students are having to think about, you know, what are the actual tools of national power, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, that I can bring to bear? And it really... What I found, I ran it uh, four times, a total of four times over four years. And what I found with cadets was that it really helped them envision the very complex social and economic and political environment that existed at the time and ultimately why the Mongols were so successful um, in their invasion. And and one extra thing that I'll say about the Mongol Matrix game is it's, um, you know, I, I have the materials. I'm happy to make the, the materials available to anyone. Um, it's a little bit stalled out right now in that it relies on a map and some primary sources from a textbook that is no longer in print. Uh, so I will I will put an exclusive offer out there to listeners of your podcast, Dave. If there is somebody out there, uh, either a Mongol or a Russian historian, who is interested in taking over this game and you know bringing a, a new map into it and bringing some primary sources in to support it, I am happy to turn all the materials over to you and have you run with it because that was really kind of the core idea of this from the start was for this to be a great, easy, one-off classroom game that folks can use. Wow. Thank you, Ray, for sharing. I, that's incredibly generous of you. And to be honest, prior to you talking about this, I had never heard of what a quote-unquote matrix game was. But you know, the one thing I think is particularly fascinating is the premise, right? Where students would propose like a, a course of action, but others can determine whether or not that course of action is valid and if it would work, and then the probability of whether it would work. And it kind of reminds me with a lot of like, you know, tabletop role-playing games where essentially mm -hmm. at this point, everyone's kind of like the referee, the dungeon master for everyone else and trying to determine, you know, yes, yes, that would work. Is it possible? Yes. Is it feasible? Probably not. So you're probably going to have to roll a very high number in order for that to work. And I just think that is such an accessible choice uh, structure and um, the way that you've formed it so that, you know, students actually need to think critically about, okay, well, this player wants to do this. Would that actually have worked during that time? And if it would work, why would it work? And if not, I have to make the case why it wouldn't. That's brilliant. Thank you, Ray, for sharing. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to the Matrix game style is one of the core things that we try to do throughout the history program, but especially in the first year history courses, is get cadets accustomed to the idea of making a historical argument, right? Mm -hmm. and how do you do that? Well, you put forth a thesis and then you put forth evidence to defend that thesis. Well, that's exactly what you do in a matrix game. That you know, I'm going to do this move and it will work because X. So it not only is it just fun and engaging, um, but it's also a great way to teach historical method. Wow. Thank you, Ray, again. I appreciate it. So, Ray, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this has been incredibly fascinating and enlightening. Uh, where can people go to find more uh, out more about you? Yeah, so the easiest place to find out more about me uh, is my website. So it is 42ED, so the number 4 and 2ED.games.com. 
not .com, not .org, .games. That is not a typo, I promise you. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, all as at 42edgames. And if you're an email kind of person, and trust me, I get it why you might be an email kind of person and not a social media kind of person, uh, you can always email me at ray, R-A-Y, at 42ed.games. Great. Thank you, Ray. And also for all of our listeners, those links and Ray's email address will also be included in the show notes. So make sure, make sure you check it out there. So I hope you found this episode useful. If you'd like to learn more, then a great place to start is with my free course on gamification. You can sign up for it at universityxp.com slash gamification. You can also get a full transcript of this episode, including links to references in the description or show notes. Thanks for joining us. Again, I'm your host, Dave Eng from Gamespace Learning by University XP. On Experience Points, we explore different ways we can learn from games. If you like this episode, please consider commenting, sharing, and subscribing. Subscribing is absolutely free and ensures that you'll get the next episode of Experience Points delivered directly to you. I'd also love you if you took some time to rate the show. I live to live with others with learning, so if you found this episode useful, consider sharing it with someone who could also benefit. Also, make sure to visit University XP online at universityxp.com. University XP is also on Twitter at university underscore XP on Facebook and LinkedIn as University XP. Also, feel free to email me anytime. My email address is dave at universityxp.com. Game on.